Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, October 24th. Now the Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter, columnist, and these days morning newsletter writer, David Leonhardt. He has a new book called Ours Was the Shining Future, the Story of the American Dream. It's just out today. As usual with David Leonhardt, this both tells many people's stories and is also very data-rich. David was an economics reporter steeped in the numbers as well as the people, and you can see it again in this book. David, congratulations on the book. Always good to have you on the show. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you so much, Brian. It's great to be on the show. How old is the term the American dream, and where did it come from? Uh, So it is... um Uh, nearly a century old. And what I find most striking about it is that um, it dates from the Great Depression. Um, So there is a book in 1931 called The Epic of America by a historian named James Truslow Adams, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his first book. But this was the best-selling book he wrote. And it's really remarkable to think about the fact that um, in in the midst of the Great Depression, 1931, so he's writing it in, in 1930, he writes a book where he says the American dream is the is this country's greatest contribution to world thought. And he defines the American dream is the notion of a better, richer, happier life for all citizens of every rank. Um, and he acknowledges all the challenges to that dream. But he says that is the fundamental American idea, the American dream. Um, and that's when it dates to. But why then? I mean, it's ironic, at least, that the American dream as an idea grew out of the American nightmare that was the Great Depression. Yeah. yeah. And so I think part of what part of what he wants to do is sort of pull back the lens, um, uh, broaden the lens. Right. Um, and and essentially argue that it is not just um, uh, it's not a short term situation. Right. If you look at the full history of the United States, you really do see a very different picture. Um, and it is a picture in which living standards had risen for most people, particularly immigrants, but not just immigrants, obviously not for all people, um, but for most people over time. And what I find so so striking about it is he's writing it at a moment when both the American economy is falling apart and we're seeing the seeds of something better that can grow out of it. Well, how inclusive or exclusive was the American dream at its peak? And we'll talk about why you think it's in decline and how to revive it. But People who know the history of the last hundred years, I guess that's people not in Ron DeSantis' school system, haha. Uh, but people who know some of the ways that American dream economics favored white Americans in particular and white males even more so um, might be wondering how much did American dream economics reduce income disparity at its peak? So you mean American dream economics in the decades after World War II? Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really remarkable. So, Brian, we're sitting here in 2023, and we have basically been living through rising inequality for um, 
all or most of the adult life of everyone who's been alive today because inequality starts rising um, really depending how you look at the numbers um, in the late 70s or the early 80s. So we're talking now about um, 40 years or more. But it's remarkable when you look back at what happened in our economy in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and even into the 60s and the early 70s, Incomes rose more for the poor and the middle class than they did for the rich. That's something that we almost can't wrap our minds around today. Um, uh, even before the great victories of the civil rights movement, the black-white wage gap shrunk and the black-white life expectancy gap shrunk in the 40s and 50s quite markedly. Um, and so it and we got an economy, we got mass prosperity. We got an economy in which 92% of people who were born in 1940 grew up to earn more money than their parents did. So think about that, 92%. It's nearly everybody. It's the vast majority of people who suffered a layoff or who had a health crisis. Um, many of the people who didn't make more than their parents, they ended up doing okay. They were, you know, they may have grown up as the child of a corporate executive who decided to become a teacher. And so the up escalator of the of the US economy was going was so steep and going so fast that um, that it really just lifted um, the vast majority of the population. And I think maybe the biggest think way to look at your book, obviously you, you'll tell me, but is that it's largely a narrative of two competing forms of capitalism, one that you argue helped create the American dream that you were just describing, and one that's been ascendant in recent decades that you argue is destroying it. So how would, how would you begin to define those competing forms of capitalism? So, I mean, this is a book of history. It's not a book of economic analysis for the most part, although I really try to explain the economy to people. And um, that first version of capitalism I define as democratic capitalism, small d democratic capitalism, although it's important to say that the capital D Democratic Party uh, has been the main force over United States history to push this version of capitalism. Um, and in democratic capitalism, you acknowledge the word capitalism is important in there. I mean, capitalism still is the best system for lifting living standards around the world. Um, there really is no model of, of a communist or socialist government creating mass prosperity in the way that we've had it in this country and in the way that Japan and South Korea and Western Europe have had it. But capitalism also has predictable excesses. Um, uh, capitalism tends to produce rising inequality over time if left unchecked. Capitalism has these side effects like climate change um, in which the market doesn't take care of. And under democratic capitalism, you have a government that acknowledges both the great aspects of capitalism and the great downsides of capitalism. So, for example, it makes sure that workers can join unions, because if you leave companies and unions basically to fight it out themselves, it's pretty easy for companies to prevent anyone from joining a union. We see Starbucks doing this now, right? There are several Starbucks stores where people have voted to join a union, and Starbucks somehow figures out how to make sure that those people and the union organizers don't have jobs there, or they assign them to really miserable shifts. Um, and the government needs to step in and basically say, hey, workers should be able to join unions. Um, and if you don't have an economy where they can, uh, you have massive inequality. 
The government also needs to tax really high incomes and wealth to prevent inequality from coming together. An excerpt of my book ran in the New York Times over the weekend in the Times Magazine. And one of the other things that I described in there that the government needs to do is it needs to build roads and it needs to build schools and it needs to invest in science. And that shouldn't be a partisan point. There is no president over the last hundred years who did more to increase U.S. investment in future-oriented research than Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, and so th this doesn't need to be super expensive. You don't have to believe in a very big government to believe that the government should do these things. That's democratic capitalism, even with all the injustices in American society and all of our problems in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and into the 70s. That is what we had. And it is why living standards rose so much for so many people. Right. And you said these are competing forms of capitalism. This is not about socialism. But I'm, I'm sure some people will say, because uh, the thought popped into my head, well, what about Scandinavia, which we would call social democracies? They have a socialist element. We're obviously not talking about the Soviet Union there. And by many measures, they have a better standard of living, more equality, more quality of life as well than we do. And they would be you know, smallest socialist uh, by many definitions. Yeah, I would argue that they really still are capitalist. I mean, they would call themselves capitalist if you go there. I mean, Spotify is a Swedish company, right? If, if you spend any time in Scandinavia, it is a capitalist economy. The vast majority of your day-to-day -day interactions are, are with private companies. Now, it is, you could argue that it's sort of, it is a more extreme form of democratic capitalism in which the government does more. Um, they do more with education. They do more with social services and safety net. But that's still re I would I would argue that Scandinavia actually makes the point of just how strong democratic capitalism can be. And you can have a more intense version of it where the government has greater involvement or a somewhat less intense version of it, as we did in this country in the middle of the 20th century. But I think Scandinavia is actually a great example of how capitalism, when it is checked, when the government plays an aggressive role, can really create very good lives for people. We have a few more minutes with David Leonhardt from the New York Times, whose new book is Ours Was the Shining Future, the story of the American dream. As a matter of history, you write that the political turmoil of the 1960s began to change the trajectory of government investment and Americans' relationship to it. Do you mean the rise of the counterculture or the rights movements or the Vietnam War? What was it about the 60s that would have affected this? So in the 1960s, two, I think, important things happened. And, and the story of the 1960s and the left in this country is not the main story. The main story is the rise of the, of the Reagan conservative right that over, over basically rewrites economic policy in this country. Uh -huh. But the story of the Democratic Party is important as well. And starting in the 1960s, the Democratic Party really turned away from the idea of being predominantly a working class party and really focused increasingly on attracting college graduates. And we have seen this continue to happen today. I mean, if you look at the most affluent communities uh, around the country, uh, places like Martha's Vineyard or some of the most affluent suburbs of New York City or really some of the most affluent suburbs of any major city in America, these places are overwhelmingly democratic today. 
And the Democratic Party has struggled to win the votes of working class people. Brian, this is something you and I have talked about before. Um, it's been true for for a decade or two among working class whites. And in the last five years, it's spread to working class Latinos and Asian Americans. And Democratic support has even declined among working class African Americans uh, since 2018. Only a few percentage points. Right, only, and, 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 and we've been talking about this a lot on the show recently, so I don't want to get too sidetracked. But you know this thread of conversation drives Democrats crazy because they say, we're still the party that supports labor rights, that supports all yes. kinds of policies, paid family leave, minimum wage, you name it, uh, that, um, that is in the interest of the working class, but maybe for cultural reasons, uh, the white working class is turning against us. Yes. And I, I think it's important to say it's not only the white working class, right? I think that's why some of the last five years are particularly important. I mean, you look, for example, in Texas and Florida, and you've seen a very significant shift among Latinos uh, away from the Democratic Party. And look, I don't know exactly what reverses that, but I think it's something that the Democratic, the Democratic Party needs to think about, okay, how can it take steps that can win over more of these folks. We still are a country where the majority of Americans do not have college degrees. Um, and so that is just an absolutely vital political um, constituency to appeal to. And I think it's important to say this as well. The Republican Party since 1980 has been pursuing an economic policy that really has not worked out for most Americans. I mean, to me, the central statistic about this is that in 1980, the United States had a typical life expectancy for an affluent country. And since about 2006, we have had the single lowest life expectancy for any affluent country, lower than Japan, South Korea, Canada, Western Europe. It's even lower than some less affluent countries like Chile and China and Slovenia. Hmm. And so, and, and there are little signs that some Republicans are reconsidering this, but for the most part, the Republican Party remains deeply committed to this economic philosophy that just hasn't worked for the United States. Let's and, and oh, go ahead. Do you want to finish? No, no, no. And, and so I just think it's, I think what's fascinating about this is, and deeply important to our politics, if Democrats could figure out a way to win more multiracial working class votes, they would have a much better chance to implement an agenda that could work better than that Republican agenda has worked. We have two minutes left. Let's end on education. You cite a period, and you were just talking about how life expectancy now is below Chile and other countries, Slovenia, that Americans might not guess. You cite a period from the late 1800s through much of the 20th century when the U.S. consistently had the most educated population in the world, but that's no longer the case. How come? Briefly. For a long time, the U.S. believed in the idea of mass education. Europe said, wait, why do we actually need to send our workers to high school? This was before high school was even universal. Why do our workers need to learn math? They're just workers. And the U.S. said, no, we're going to try to educate our population broadly with huge inequalities, but nonetheless set out to educate our population broadly. And we led the world in producing high school graduates. And then we led the world in producing college graduates, thanks to the GI Bill. And then the rest of the world said, wait a second, that American approach to mass, ed mass education, that seems to work. It produces hugely productive workforces. It reduces inequality. 
And around the same time, over the last few decades, we actually lost faith in our own approach, and we've made it harder for people to go to college. We've starved community colleges and four-year colleges that educate masses of people, like City College here in New York, for resources. And and it's really a sad story because this is in many ways an American idea. It's core to the American dream, Brian. We're going to educate everyone. And now other countries have passed us by in terms of having the world's most educated population. In 30 seconds, is that your number one remedy for restoring the American dream to what it used to be, mass education? It's hard to pick number one, but I guess, Brian, I actually think if you force me to focus on one, I would say labor unions. I think labor unions are enormously important to the economics uh, within companies. I think they're enormously important to our politics. They create a place that can help people think about what their economic interests are and maybe sometimes persuade people to vote based on economics rather than culture. And um, if you look at the Democratic Party, when they've had control of levers of government, reforming labor law is the thing that they've never quite made a top priority. Barack Obama passed healthcare reform, which I think really improved people's lives. LBJ created the whole great society. And in all these cases, Joe Biden has passed all this legislation. And in all these cases, they've said, we are going to reform labor law to make it easier for workers to join unions if they want to join unions. And in all these cases, the Democratic Party hasn't gotten it done. And I think that arguably is the most important piece of federal policy um, that could make a real difference in people's lives and in our political system. David Leonhardt from the New York Times, who writes their morning newsletter, author now of Ours Was the Shining Future, the Story of the American Dream. David Leonhardt, thank you so much. Congratulations Brian, on the book. Brian, thanks for having me. Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.